Hey, it's Bob Stoffer. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Oilers Now ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Oilers Now with Bob Stoffer, weekdays at noon on Oilers Radio, 630 Chad. We return to Oilers Now with Bob Stoffer. Brought to you by Digitex. Service for all brands of print equipment in your office? Yeah, Digitex does that. D-I-G-I-T-E-X dot C-A on Oilers Radio, 630 Chad. Welcome back, everybody. Bob Stoffer, Brendan Escott with you. It's 1234 at Edmonton. Just before we go to our headliner today, Louis DeBras. Brendan, I owe you an apology. I did not realize that you had had a little bit of an exchange on the text line. Here's the deal. When we respond back to texts, uh, we put our initials so people know it's either Brendan or myself. I, so my apologies. I didn't realize that you had already texted uh, Darcy a couple times, uh, you know, with uh, where you're going at. Yeah, I don't want to bury you with my – my. Well, listen, I'll, I'll call it immaturities here on the text line, but don't text me and tell me that you're a loyal listener but you're about to flip the station because you're tired of the subject we're listening to. That's not loyal. Loyalty. That's not loyalty. And then, I don't know. But I, I will give you credit, Bob, because you've got a tremendous amount of patience for that kind of thing. I am not at that point yet. You know what? When I was your age, I was one of those guys that used to ride guys in the 50s all the time. <laughs> I'm serious. I used to do it myself. So, in fact, when I see Halsey, I it, anyhow, you know what I'm saying. All right. Uh, you you got to have fun with it. And you know what? You, you learn how to take a little bit of criticism. It comes with the territories. And you certainly realize, with the territory, and you certainly realize that everybody's allowed to, to have their opinion and not everyone's going to like you and not everybody's going to agree with you. As we bring aboard one of the most likable guests we have on this show, our Oilers now headliner for touchback safety. Touchback remains open for training, taking all necessary precautions to ensure the safety of their staff and clients. We never disagree on anything, do we, Louie? You and me? <laughs> a few things, but not much. But yeah, yeah, a few things we do. Yeah. I'm trying to think, like, uh, you know, I did something the other night. Uh, Paul Almedia put out a tweet uh, ranking the Oilers' top tough guys of all time. And I, I, I put a list of five guys that, that I fired out there. And I had Dave Brown, number one, Dave Semenko, number two, George LaRock, number three, Marty McSorley, number four, and Steve McIntyre, number five. I, 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 I'm reluctant to put you and Craig Simpson on any list because you guys have been on the show so much and I wouldn't want people thinking that I'm uh, too overly partial to either of you two guys but you know what I'm saying, right? Like the it, it dawned on me after I'm like, wow, you know, I, you know, I got Louie on my show every Thursday, and he was here for a longer time frame than uh, Dave Brown and Steve McIntyre. But I, 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 I do you have any like those guys yeah, were no. all pretty tough, Louie, weren't they? Yeah, no, I, I have no. For me, you you hit the nail right in the head. That's the five that I would have picked, hundred <laughs> percent. You know, I told you that in the text there day. I said hundred percent. Those are the five that I would pick, and I don't even, I wouldn't even think that I'm in that category with those five. I mean, I fought Marty a lot of times and held my own against Marty, but if you look at the body of work of all five of those guys, 
there's no argument there, and I'm I'm on the same page. So yes, we agree on this one for sure. We don't disagree. I had Dave Brown number one partially because of his mean streak. Like he, you know, there were a couple times where he kind of, you know, <laughs> we all. If you're an Oilers fan, you loved. You did, because you're kind of a red-blooded guy or gal out there. You're a fan of the team, and you didn't mind seeing, you know, Dave Brown work over Jim Kite. I remember the time he bounced Cam Russell's head off the ice after he, you know, dropped him with a punch. I was like, ooh. But he did have a mean streak, didn't he? You know what? It was, it was a killer instinct is what it was for me. You know, with 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 Brownie, he was the and he was all less. He, and, and that that's always uh, you know, fittingly so when you look at these these fighters. Two of them that were two of the best in the top five, Larocque and Brown, were left-handers. George would more manhandle guys. He was right. so strong on his skates. He was such a big individual. I mean, don't get me wrong. He had punching power, but I don't think guys were afraid of his punching power per se as as more than they were getting thrown around like a rag doll. Whereas Dave Brown, his punching power and how sharp he was with those punches, it was, you know, it was bad intentions on every single one. Sammy could could maul you to death and then throw from both hands, and the longer the fight went, it seemed to be better. McSorley had incredible endurance. McIntyre was the one for me um, that... He could throw both. Uh, he could knock you out with both. He, I, I honestly personally think that if he had more time and just more seasoning and he would have hit it at the right time coming to the NHL, he might very seriously be up on that list even higher for me. I think, you know, he was, I honestly think he came in at a time where he was too tough for his own good. He couldn't find fights. Nobody wanted to fight him. I mean, this guy was literally just one of those guys there was maybe four or five guys in the league that would willingly fight this guy and after that he was you know he was guys were told not to fight him and i'm talking heavyweights and i I remember i think i said on the air one day with you i said they're going to not fight themselves right out of the league because guys that start turning away fights from a guy like mcintyre well all of a sudden we don't see those guys anymore Uh, and i'm not saying the game's better or worse for it i'm saying that's what it was then and if you don't take those fights then you're no longer going to have a job and uh that's what we see now the tough guys today are a little different than they were 10 15 years ago yeah in in mcintyre's case he was he was probably born five to seven years too late yeah uh, you know because he was obviously in that suit the thing about mcintyre you know what thank god because i'm glad i didn't ever have to go up against him he never he was a scary individual well i mean louis correct me if i'm wrong here he was better the second time he fought a guy too Oh, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying with more time. He took a couple beats, you know, and from tough guys. We all saw what Eric Goddard did to him in Pittsburgh when he came in. He was a little too gung-ho, a little too aggressive, and bang, bang. It took like four or five straight shots. And Eric Goddard could really throw. I fought him twice. Trust me, he's got some steam on those punches. Broke his orbital bone, comes back after going to the dressing room, getting stitched up and repaired clobbers Chris Letang with a huge hit, and then finally they, they look at him and say, listen, you need to leave the game. Your, your face is all swollen up, and there's something going on there. And it turned out that he was playing with broken bones in his face. I mean, he yeah. just he was an all-different kind of tough. I'll tell you what. he uh, You know what? I got to spend some time with Big Mac. You know, we both like to bow hunt. We both like to get out to the outdoors. And uh, I, I, I've watched that guy do some, do some things that I'm like. I just shake my head and say, you know, I don't even think he realized how strong he was. He was he was a very very strong individual. But the longer the fight went, I mean, he was fighting last year in a league in Carolina. I watched a video the other day. I couldn't believe it. 
And same typical Mac took about four or five at the start of the fight. And then once he started getting the left jackhammers going, it was like nighty night time. And I mean, he was just a very dangerous individual. Uh, you were so the, the game in Pittsburgh. Rod was uh, out for that road trip. He had the inner ear infection, missed the seven games. So Rob Brown and me did the uh, radio, and and you, that was the first year you were doing color. And we flew after the game into New York City, and the the players' wives were meeting the uh, team there. And Sheldon Surrey was sitting up with Steve McIntyre after uh, Goddard had broken McIntyre's orbital bone. And do you remember on the flight that Steve's face started to swell up yeah. as the air pressure took off? It was it was pretty, <laughs> but there was people talk about Sheldon Surrey. There was Sheldon Surrey helping, and he goes, "Hey, the same thing happened to me. I got dropped early in my career in a, in a, in a right. scrap." Right. I, I I actually fought Sheldon fairly um, close after that. You know, he 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 had taken a bad beat early in his career, and I think he broke some bones in his face and uh, broken jaw, or cheekbone. I can't remember exactly what the injury was, but it was Cam Belanger. That's okay, there you, well, there's another guy, very similar to Big Mac in the sense that he could throw both hands. He was a big guy, and I'll tell you what, there was just, you know, you, the list goes on and on, and you and I have talked about this at length, about just how different of a game it was back then, but I'll, I'll put McIntyre in any, any era. Um, he's as tough as they come. Yeah, uh, and, I mean, he fought Derek Goddard twice, and the second time he fought him, he broke, or sorry, uh, uh, Derek Bugard. Twice in uh, in New York on that afternoon game, where all hell broke loose with uh, Avery and Ladislav Schmid, and he broke uh, Bugard's nose in the second fight. And I know that the New York Times, when they did the story on on Derek's passing, they said he didn't really ever get over that fight with uh, McIntyre. You know, it was kind of he'd gotten a little bit discouraged after, and the, sort of lost a bit of the the fire, and that that kind of comes with the territory. Uh, you've said before you think Joey Kosher is uh, one of the hardest guy, hardest hitters, hardest punchers. I know that uh, our friend Jack has fired a, a text our way. Uh, uh, a guy you do, you've done a little, little bit of business with in the past, uh, just saying Tim Hunter uh, has uh, repeatedly told him that Dave Brown punched harder than anybody. He punched through you, and I think that's part of it. It's kind of like how Dallas Drake used to hit uh, Louie. Like Dallas Drake, <laughs> he skated through you when he hit you, didn't he? It's incredible, you know, because there's a lot of big guys who just, and I agree with you, you know, like Dally, I played with him in, in Phoenix, and he wasn't the biggest guy off the ice. You know, I'm, I don't even know what he would have weighed. Maybe 180 pounds, 185 pounds, but and especially late in his career, it almost was like, as most guys do, they lean out more, they want more speed, endurance, and they want to be able to, you know, just kind of not carry as much weight so they can, you know, play more minutes and play harder for those more minutes. But when he lined guys up, it was, you know, Josh Archibald reminds me a little bit of him in the sense that when he hit somebody, he commits 100% to the hit. It's, he, he throws all the weight into it. And where he was really dangerous was on the penalty kill. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but Jeremy Roenick and him just had this thing, and it was very similar to the Matthew Kachuk hit on Zach Cassian. They would come down, and they would catch a guy coming around the net. So they would be the forward on the penalty kill, and instead of staying in that box formation, they would come flying down on the far side. The defenseman would be harassing uh, a player coming around the net, and they wouldn't see those forwards come down, and they would absolutely blow guys up on the penalty kill. And that was when, you know, <laughs> headshots were just part of the game, which is crazy looking back at it now. It, it, you know, there wasn't even a concern of head. It was like, you know what, 
take his head off was a saying we used to use all the time. You were actually aiming for the head when you would hit, which is just bizarre to me now, but that's just the way it was. And uh, Jeremy Roenick and Dallas Drake were two of the best at coming down and just popping someone. And obviously being the power play, it was the best players of the opposition. So you're punishing the best players every time you hit them like that. And I just... I thought it was so effective, and I'd like to see a little more of that today. Guys let their guard down on the penalty on the power play. They have the puck a lot. They think they're safe. You can get some really good hits. I don't want to see anybody's head get taken off, but a good, hard, punishing hit every once in a while never hurts. We're joined by NHL Hockey on Rogers analyst Louis DeBrusque, who, of course, works the Oilers games and works their national package as well. Louis, our Oilers now headliner for touchback safety. Touchback remains open for training, taking all necessary precautions to ensure the safety of their staff and clients. Louis, uh, you've got uh, your son, Jake. Uh, I believe he's still at home right now. Um, I've uh, I've abridged my numbers from 50-50 we play to 55-45 we play. I mean, when you're starting to get provincial leaders saying they'd be very interested in, in having the NHL come there, I think that bodes well. Uh, we've got the return to play committee and back-to-back days. There's still lots of hoops and hurdles to get through. But I, I'm wondering if you're getting any of a gut feel that maybe there might be a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel here. Yeah, I saw that report that came out too. Spit and Chicklets had it about Bettman saying that the canceling of the season is one of the last things on his mind right now. So obviously their mindset is still to try and get this done and, and have a season. Um, yeah, I, I would agree with you. I, I'm on I'm on the same page. You know, I know it's not always fun to always agree, but I agree with you in the sense that I do think it's swaying more towards there's a possibility this could happen. Um, real telling time right now. Things opened up today. This is a big day here and around where things, businesses have started to open up a bit and loosen up a little bit through this COVID uh, pandemic, and we'll see how that turns out. I really think the next two, three weeks are going to be crucial, crucial, not just in hockey, but I just mean and what happens going forward here with this whole pandemic. I, I'm really interested to see how um, by opening up some more businesses and people starting to go back to some normalcy, how this how this ha- affects everybody and what the numbers are after a couple, couple of weeks of doing this. And if the numbers are good, then I don't see any reason why they go to the next phase, why they wouldn't go to the next phase and really start to move forward and see how they can maybe get this done. So there's been a lot of talk about it, a lot of things that have come out here as far as where the games are going to take place. Is it four cities? I've heard now down to two potentially. I mean, We'll see. I mean, this is, I know they've been, they've been talking about this at length, and this is something that they're never going to give up on until they finally do pull the plug, if that's what they have to do. But until that day happens, I think every single bit of energy they have is being focused on trying to make this happen. Yeah. Uh, Louis, I, I, have, you, have you been watching Last Dance with, with Michael Jordan? I have been. It's outstanding. Yeah, yeah it's it, been. It's an incredible. Uh, it does. It just brings you right back to that time too. It's amazing how lucky we've been as as sports fans to see some of the greatest in every respect of sport come in and just break records and do things that nobody's done before. But boy, I I, I just think they've done a great job so far on that. I'm catching up. I haven't watched all the episodes, so I'm right. not entirely up to date on it. But um, I think I've watched five or six now. All right. One of the ways, one of the things I wanted you to comment, I mean, we talk, you just talked about the fact that the NHL has changed, and we might even see a further change, and it might even result, I know some have reported, you know, players might be in bubbles, there might not be any fighting allowed if we do return, I'm not necessarily 100% sure that's going to happen as a result of COVID if we do indeed get back. 
But it's interesting when you watch Last Dance and you know talk about the physicality of the Pistons in the late '80s, and and because it's not the same today, you don't have the same sort of aggressiveness in basketball, and it's it's very similar to kind of what's occurred in hockey. It is, you know, and I, I you know, I mean, I'll even go further, and I, I watched the recent MMA um, UFC. You know, in Jacksonville, Florida, and it was uh, it was a great card. There was some great fights on that card. It was nice to see something live again, something that was uh, that was new. And I'll tell you, I think they did a great job. And one of the things there too was there was an athlete that actually tested positive, and he had to he had to bow out of the event. But once you're kind of into that bubble, and you talked about a bubble isolation, whether it's a rink, hotel, everybody that's involved in the situation has to stay in that in that hotel respectively so that nobody is really getting outside of there and has a potential to get infected i think once you've tested people and and they've tested negative and then they're inside that bubble i think then you, it's just you play as normal i don't think you're you're really too concerned with it once you're in that world it's just a matter of setting up and getting it into that world and then once you're in that world protecting it that's going to be the hard part. But, again, I, th- I think the UFC did a terrific job, and I think that was a huge step forward for sports. I think that, that event right there alone um, made people think, hey, you know what, maybe this could happen. Because even though there weren't fans, and I know MMA is a little different, it's one-on-one, it's a fight, and that's what you're watching. It would be no different than boxing. You really don't care about the fans from a visual perspective when you're watching it. Um, it was it was pretty awesome. It was it was pretty cool to see that. And Joe Rogan, I thought, did an amazing job stepping in there. And the interviews just were more concise. You could listen to them. The banter afterwards. I mean, I guess the fighters could hear everything they were saying on the sidelines. And uh, I thought I found that kind of funny. But I'll tell you what, I I loved it, and I think it was a real step forward again. And these are these little steps being taken forward on a daily basis that you know have to continue to happen for any other sports to come back and especially a sport like hockey or basketball where there's just so many people involved it's not just two guys going at it on a fight card or say 20 fighters 30 fighters if that 25 fighters that are involved in an event this is we're talking almost a thousand plus people here that are going to be involved in this and it's going to be important that they make sure they're safe louis one more thing uh you got me hooked on hunters i watched yeah. the entire series I, I had uh, I had something figured out in episode four. I don't want to wreck it for anybody else if they end up getting a, a chance to watch it on Prime. But I, I got to ask you: Did you ever see Marathon Man with Dustin Hoffman and uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier? A long time ago. Refresh my memory. Well, he he basically. Uh, Dustin Hoffman is a is a grad student at Columbia, and his older brother. Uh, is in some form, I don't know if he's CIA or... Uh, anyways, he's involved in, in uh, a smuggling operation with a, a Nazi played by uh, Lawrence Olivier, who I okay. believe received a Golden Globe for that and is considered one of the greatest actors of all time. It was like 1976 when it came out with Dustin Hoffman. And, I'll have to uh, revisit it. I'll have to yeah, revisit and you know what's, you know what's interesting? Uh, I believe that Olivier did not like the fact that Dustin Hoffman had to method act, that he couldn't just turn it on and off, that he needed to get into the part as much. And there was some, so they never really philosophically were aligned on how to handle each of the scenes because Hoffman would do things, like there's there's a scene in there uh, 
where Olivier play he's a former dentist that, that's a Nazi and ends up down in South America or whatever and he's got to go get some uh, some diamonds that he's smuggled stolen back in the 19 uh, late 30s early 40s and so in order to try to do a, a, an extraction no pun uh, intended of a little <laughs> bit of information from Dustin Hoffman he literally extracts his teeth and so what oh. Hoffman so what I think Hoffman, I do remember that, yeah. Okay, what Hoffman did yeah. is Hoffman did not sleep for the three days before they shot the scene because he wanted to be wigged out and going, you know, certifiable in, in the scene to provide more legitimacy to it. And Olivier was actually critical that Hoffman just couldn't turn it on and off and act normally and, and perform the task. So it's pretty interesting, some of the storylines behind it. But I thought as I was watching Hunters uh, with Al Pacino, I was thinking of uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman in Marathon Man. So, anyways. Joaquin Phoenix, right? Method actor. They get right into it. They yeah. absolutely become that character. I, 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 get, I agree. I don't know if that's a real healthy thing, to be honest with you, but if that's what it takes to get the job done, I mean, those are some pretty darn good actors. What, what was it Joaquin Phoenix who went on with David Letterman the one time and totally yeah. freaked him out? And then yeah. Joker. I mean, Joker. Look at him in Joker. I mean, he... Uh, tell you what. He uh, he dives in. There's no question about that. You want to talk about committed, he's committed. Absolutely. All right. Hey, Louie, thanks for your time. We'll talk next week. Sounds good, Bob. Thanks, bud. You bet. Uh, this text comes in just before we go to a break here. Bob, talking about Last Dance, don't you think the parallels with the Oilers dynasty are, simpler, are, are super similar? The difference, I would say, well, the NBA was changing their model for the league in the late 1990s, but Jerry Krause basically eliminated the entire Bulls team within 18 months of them winning that last champ. Of course, he didn't bring back Phil Jackson as head coach. Uh, Jordan retired. They were going to have a, I think they had a lockout in 98, 99, if I recall correctly. Uh, Rodman and Pippen were both gone out of there the next year. So were some of the, like eight of their key guys were all gone within the next two years. But I do not think it was financially driven. And I think in the case of the Oilers, unfortunately, under Peter Pocklington, uh, starting with Paul Coffey and then on to Wayne Gretzky and then eventually the other, uh, Hall of Famers. I mean, the players, you know, specifically Gretzky and Messier, those trades were cash-driven. So I do think it's slightly different in terms of uh, why it happened, uh, which has lent itself to more criticism for Jerry Krause in particular. 12.56 in Edmonton. We will take a timeout off to a global news weather traffic update with Eileen Bell. When we come back, Brian Burke for Canadian Power Pack. Oilers Now with Bob Stoffer. Weekdays at noon on Oilers Radio. 6.30 Chad.